Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. So my paintings are worked out, I would say 98% before I even start painting. So I am not a spontaneous person in life. (laughs) I am not very spontaneous with my paintings. I pretty much have everything worked out in my head, on the computer, in my image before I start. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. For the next two episodes, I'm talking with watercolorist Carrie Waller. In part A, today's, Waller talks about being okay with finishing painting slowly. She explains how she uses color in her work and shares the method she uses to bypass those ugly middle stages that can demoralize so many of us. In part B, we get into the specifics of glass the importance of art friends, and why sometimes you just need to take one of those technical art classes. It'll pay off later big time. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode eight to get show notes and find links to Waller's work and workshops. Part A with Carrie Waller. Here we go. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to the podcast. First off, what do you love about watercolor? I love the look that you can get from watercolor and I just love paper as well. So there's something about the surface and something about the way it interacts that I love. I think when I first started painting, I got into watercolor because I've always had pets around and then later kids. And so I always wanted something that to me seemed a little more non-toxic. And I don't know about you, but if I have to change my clothes, (laughs) that's one more, (laughs) or worry about getting my clothes ruined, that is one more obstacle that might just say, I'm not going to paint today. So with watercolor, I feel like I can sit down. Not that I haven't had some accidents with some tubes of paint, but I feel like it's less threat in that messy department. So it's just easier to pick up, go, and you can paint anywhere with it. So then what attracts you to still life? I'm kind of an introvert. And even when I'm taking photographs, I always get annoyed when people are in the photograph and I want no people. (laughs) And I am not trying to discredit figurative work at all because I love a lot of figurative work. Just for me, something is quieter about a still life. And I don't know, I just something about setting up a still life and, you know, being able to create a story that way just appeals to me. At what point did you decide you really wanted to learn to paint? When I first got married, it shifted my entire trajectory because I had a plan. I went to school for interior design and I was working at an architectural firm in Chicago and I had a plan and I had a five-year plan and you know how that goes, the best laid plans. And then I met my husband my senior year of college and he was going into the Air Force and that completely changed everything. And so literally it was like a fork in the road <laughs> my last semester of college. Do I stay on with this architectural firm that I loved? 
or, you know, follow my heart and marry my husband. And his first assignment was Germany. And so, of course, as time tells, I moved to Germany with my husband. And unfortunately, I couldn't use my degree. And actually, I guess it turned out to be fortunate in some ways because it made me think outside of that box. And I just decided from day one, if I was going to follow his career, that I wanted to do something creative. Fast forward down the road, I ended up doing series of other creative jobs every time we moved. Then I started having children. And when I started having children, I thought I'm going to go insane if I don't do something for myself. And for me, painting is very meditative. And um, so when my husband deployed to Afghanistan, when my youngest son was a baby, so my children about three years apart, he deployed and I thought I'm, I've got a toddler at home and a baby and no adult interaction. <laughs> and so I really needed an outlet. And that's when I started painting every day. And I actually blogging was kind of really taking off at that point in time. And I thought, well, what could I blog about? And I had just watched the movie Julia and Julie or Julie and Julia, whichever. Right? And so she blogs her way through the Julia Child cookbook. And I was like, what could I blog about? And I was like, oh, I used to paint, you know, I used to do this painting thing. <laughs> So I decided to start doing a painting a week and just blogging my journey through that. And um, about that same time, there was a podcast that started called Artists Helping Artists. And Leslie Seda was the host and she's out of California and it's still going. And she literally was has a marketing background and she was walking me through step by step. And I just started doing everything she said. I'm not one to be like a big fan of popular bands and stuff, but I was a fangirl of Leslie and Dreama at the time. And so I got the opportunity to meet her in person when she came to Atlanta. And uh, so then after that, I did start guest co-hosting from time to time with the podcast. But, you know, as an artist, you're so isolated. And so sitting at home, being able to listen to what these ladies are doing and saying, I could do that, you know, I can produce the calendar. I, you know, it just gave me so many creative ideas and ways I could express myself. And so that's really how I began the journey. And then with that, I decided I should take a workshop, which, you know, I probably didn't even know workshops were a thing until listening to a podcast. And so I thought I'll take a workshop in watercolor. And so I chose one based on geography of who could babysit my children while I took one. So I took one in Louisiana where my in-laws are. And then when I took that workshop, I realized that people actually had like professional full-time careers based on the art that they were producing. So maybe it was naive. Maybe I just stumbled through everything, but I just, you know, that's kind of how it was like, oh, oh, every everything was like a light bulb moment for me at that time. So then I thought, well, I am going to like seriously pursue this and see what, you know, how far I can go with it. And um, so that was about, my son is now 10. So that was probably when he was about two. So about eight years ago. Also, I should put in a plug. That is a great podcast. We'll have a link to that show because it is excellent. It's an excellent show. If someone hasn't heard of that yet. They're going to be so excited to find that show. <laughs> Listening to you talk about this, it sounds like structure was helpful for you, that you made structure for yourself, whether it was, I'm going to create a painting a week. Right. I am How definitely goal-oriented. Now, I would not say on a daily basis I am the most disciplined person because life happens. I have two children, 13 and 10, and we have a lot of activities. So I kind of consider myself a binge painter. I will just throw myself into a painting and I stay up to the wee hours because I love painting at night. It's quiet. Nobody can bug me. <laughs> I have time to myself. 
So I am a binge painter in that aspect and my house will kind of fall apart. And then I jump back into life after I'm kind of done with the painting. But that being said, I work on deadlines. So that's why I do a lot of competitions is because I work so well on a deadline. I can't procrastinate if I know I have, you know, this deadline to finish. And it puts me in a mindset of I want to have the most professional looking piece that I can if I'm doing a competition. So my head's kind of in the game when I work that way. Especially when you're first starting out, it can be easy to hear how someone works and think, that's the way I should work. That's the Mm -hmm. only way to work. How long did it take you to find a way of working both in the process way, but also just like realizing that you're a binge painter and that that's okay? I mean, you really have to listen to your own rhythms. And it's kind of like you hear all these people and they say, or this whole movement, get up at five in the morning. It's the best thing you can do for your life. That does not work for me. I cannot, I am not creative. I have tried, trust me, I have tried to push myself into that box. I cannot get creative until four in the afternoon, period, the end. That doesn't work for me. So I think you have to listen to your own rhythms and figure it out because you could sit there and beat your head up against the wall trying to push yourself into this, you know, I've got to get up at six. I have to be productive before eight. It doesn't work for me. So for me... If I paint at night, I just have to get the best lighting possible so I can paint, you know, from 10 o'clock till two in the morning. And, um, and that's my productive time. What was the biggest challenge you faced when learning to paint? Do you remember any obstacles where you just thought like, ah, this was tough and then breaking through it? Well, I love a good challenge. And I think that's also part of what I love about watercolor because I read early on, it was the most difficult medium. I don't know if that's true, but that made me want to pursue it even more because I thought, and there is the component, you've got water in addition to pigment and you're managing all of it, right? At the same time. So there is a difficult aspect to it, but I love a good challenge. So we all face rejection and that's probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks is not getting into some competition or something like that can really throw a curveball and derail you for a while. So early on, um, Jane Freeman told me that she never looked at it as a rejection of her work. She never let it get her down. She just thought there were so many entries and she was going to push herself to see what she could do better in the next time. And that was her, you know, like that was her starting position okay, I did this one this time. It didn't make it. I'm going to see how can I push it? What can I do next? What is my next challenge? So I've taken that advice and I'm always thinking about that. So I might get too comfortable doing just a solid black background. And so then I'll think, what could I do next? So I want to do blurred backgrounds. So I know whatever painting I'm going to do next, I'm going to try to find the best reference with I do take my own reference. It sounds like I'm looking for them. But when I'm photographing, I want the best reference with that I could do a blurred background with. That's why I love doing series of paintings because I might start with one painting. My light bulb series is a good example. So I started with kind of a bird's eye view of my light bulbs. And then I thought, what could I do next? So I really wanted to get into the light bulbs and see the inner workings of it. And then once I did that, I thought, well, now I want to try to have 
a blurred background, you know, with this. So I knew I wanted certain color scheme and I stuck with that. So they're all cohesive, but I was trying to figure out, you know, what could I do next that could be more interesting? What could push the limits? So that's kind of how I explore with my compositions and with my paintings from one to the next. And sometimes they get totally crazy and I don't know if it's going to work. I did one called Abundance and it's just stacked teapots and glass and there's uh, lights behind. I wanted to incorporate light bulbs and glass teapots because I'm doing a series of both. And I thought I want those two worlds to meet. And I wanted to have a bokeh, you know, like that blurred light background, the blurred lights. So I wanted to incorporate all of that in one piece. And when I took, even when I took the photos, I'm like, this is crazy. This is really crazy town. <laughs> and it may not work out, but I kept painting and kept painting and it's done really, really well. So I went with the crazy. <laughs> also, we should clarify, like, how long does a painting take you? It's hard to say because sometimes I have more time that I can devote to it but a month generally and that's a lot of hours I did video one of my paintings from start to finish and I can't remember how many hours but I do know when I sped it up like eight times or something it was still 40 hours of painting (laughs) you do the math (laughs) but some insane amount and I am not I know there are those painters that are probably started in graphic design or one of those where they're counting their hours I am not one. I think that would depress me. (laughs) I do not try to clock my hours. (laughs) But what I love about that is that even knowing that a painting is going to take that long, you still risk it. That you still say, this may not work, but I'm going to do it the best I can and we'll find out. And when I'm painting, it's always like a mental fight because I'm sitting there. This is the best thing ever. Oh my gosh, I hate this. (laughs) It's not working. It's terrible. And I have that conflict going on all the time. And my husband always says, when the ones you think are the worst turn out to be the best. So I try to push through it, push through those thoughts. So if while painting, we put a microphone inside your brain, what would be going on in there? The gamut of emotions, literally, it's like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. This is going to be the best painting that I've done. Why did I even start this? I can't stand this painting. It's terrible. You know, it's really going through every single, you know, I'm never going to make it because this is, you know, everything. And I, I try not to be too negative, but it's so easy sometimes when you're by yourself and you're just fighting through it. And sometimes I think it's kind of that fight or flight response and so I'm in my painting and maybe some part of me wants to be done with this and so I'm ready to like chuck it all but I really do fight through it and that's how I develop I ended up developing my process of how I paint because of that internal struggle that was going on and I think a lot of artists have an internal struggle and there's a lot of people that have a room full of paintings that they've never completed because they gave up on them and so I did end up developing a process for myself so that I wouldn't go through that struggle. Yeah. Walk us through your process. So from the very beginning, from the inception of the idea, I normally have something. And probably while I'm painting my previous painting, you have a lot of time where you're sitting with yourself. So a lot of times some idea will pop into my head or it could even be like a interior design photo on Pinterest or something. And it has nothing really to do with the painting, but maybe I see colors that I really like that were put together or something just caught my eye. And I thought I want to delve into that and explore. So from the beginning, I normally set up my still life outside 
I like strong sunshine, strong daylight. So I've never really used artificial lighting to do my still life because I can't get the look that I want. So um, right now where I live, I don't have good windows that let in light. Like I've lived in other houses where I could have the light come in and have a table, do it civilized. No, I have to drag everything outside and look like the crazy lady in my neighborhood. So I've literally taken furniture outside before because I wanted a certain piece of furniture and a painting. So I will drag my stuff outside and I like certain times of the day. Afternoon, you get really long, pretty shadows. And in the morning, you get a little bit different and, you know, there's light changes with whether it's summer or winter and even during the time of day. So I like to play with all of that. I even titled one of my paintings Five O'Clock Shadow because it was literally taken around that time, you know. So that's the very beginning. I will set my still life up and I photograph. I think these days are some of my most fun days because I love doing the photo shoot part. I love photography probably almost as much as painting. And so I love taking pictures. I do use my iPad or iPhone a lot of the time because you can really get different angles and you can get into it really easily. And I take no less than 100 pictures of every still life setup because you just don't know. Half the time it is so bright outside, I can't even tell what photographs I'm getting. So I feel like I don't want to waste my time, you know. Sometimes the sun is rapidly fleeting or whatever. And um, depending on where I've lived, I've had months where I didn't have sun. And so when the sun's back out, I'm like, ah, I got to get out. And, you know, I've normally by that time compile a list of what I want, what still lifes I want to set up and photograph. Some days they work out great and I have beautiful photos immediately. Sometimes they're a total bust of a day and I, those are not fun. So that's my beginning. And then I take my photos into my computer and I look to see what I got and I really filter through and I'm, I have a pretty good design sense, I think innately, but also I went to school for interior design and graphic design. So um, I'm sure that didn't hurt. So I kind of right off the bat would be like, nope, nope, no, oh, that one caught my eye. And so I'll kind of filter through that way. And I normally do keep the other photos because if I am doing a series, you never know when you go back and you might crop something differently or look at something in a different way and use the photo reference. So I take it then into Photoshop and manipulate saturation, manipulate different things, brightness, saturation. I'm not the best at Photoshop, so I'm not compiling too many images. I do paint from multiple photographs sometimes. I might like the background in one and the foreground in another. It's generally pretty much the same photo, but different colors have happened or something I like about one. So I will compile photos that way when I'm doing my reference. So once I have my reference, then I um, decide which one I want to start painting and what size I want to paint it at. And I start from there. So I then transfer it to my watercolor paper. I paint on Arch 156 pounds cold press. I learned that from Paul Jackson's workshop. He was using that paper and I really liked it. I don't, 300 pound is too soft for me and 140 is just you know you have to really stretch it and get it to lay down so 156 is a nice weight I used to go through the whole process of stretching my paper where get you know taking it into the bathtub and getting it completely wet I'm pretty impatient so now I've skipped that and I don't paint with a ton of water generally so I can tape it down to a board and I'm pretty happy with the results you know it doesn't bow too much or warp So I just tape it uh, with acid-free artist tape. I predominantly use Daniel Smith paints, but I have been expanding. I have some Holbein colors. I have picked up some Japanese calligraphy inks and, you know, things that I'm expanding with. But for the most part, Daniel Smith. And I always say there is 
an adolescent stage to a painting. It's kind of that tween. I have a teenager, so I can say this now. I have a 13 year old. <laughs> you're in that where you're you're just in that kind of awkward stage, and and you're ready to kind of give up the painting. And so for me, if I paint an entire painting, like let's say I do a few washes, and I the whole thing is just not finished, it's very easy to want to abandon it because you can't see where it's going. You can't see what it's going to look like. So I find it much easier. I paint pretty much from right to left. I am right-handed. I don't know why I do it this way. I didn't even know I did it until I started taking videos of myself painting. But I paint from right to left, and I really finish like an inch at a time, almost like a strip on the paper. And then I get all of my values established immediately. And I feel like I'm wasting less time because so many artists have trouble with values and they can't decide if it's dark enough. And a lot of times when a painting's not working, the values are not where they should be. So doing it this way, I can immediately get where I need to be. And I'm not futzing around with 30 washes of a color because I need a saturated glaze. It has worked for me. And I know I've heard people say I would have a very schizophrenic painting if I did it that way because one side might not look like the other side. But it's pretty easy for me to accomplish that and I teach workshops and my students I have them paint kind of how I paint and I have yet to have anybody really have a failure of a painting doing that that technique so I understand everybody has their own techniques I'm just saying if you're having trouble with values you might give it a go and see if that is a strategy that might work for you how did you find that process and also it shows such thoughtfulness to realize oh this is frustrating and I might walk away. And if you walk Mm. away, then you never get better at painting. And you pushed through that and then were thoughtful about what you needed in a process and then found one. How did you find that? I wish I could say, you know, I had this big (laughs) light bulb moment. I really think it just developed naturally. The good thing about the way I learned to paint and kind of being independent and not doing a lot of workshops in the beginning was I didn't have anybody telling me this is wrong or this is right. And I just kind of developed my own from working trial and error. And I love workshops. I love teaching them. And I learn, I think, as much from my students as they learn from me because you've got all these experiences, all this going on. So I do not want to say anything negative about workshops because you are in this collaborative, creative environment. And everyone's working together and everyone brings things to the table and it's fantastic. But if you are one of these people that you go to a workshop and you're like, oh, I have to do it this way. And you get like really discouraged and then you go to another one and and you're kind of like a pinball where you're like going back and forth and you then stop and just go home and paint some mileage because you've got to work some things out for yourself and nobody can teach you your best process except yourself. So I think just putting your nose to the grindstone and really doing the work is where you can discover a lot of things. And then you go to a workshop for fine tuning. Maybe you decide you like the way somebody does something and you want to see how they do that. And that's what I said. I have the benefit of having, you know, 20, 25 students in a workshop when I'm teaching and they've taken workshops from probably 20, 25 people. (laughs) And I have the benefit of them saying, well, I learned this in here and I learned this in there. And I'm like, oh, that's, you know, so it is great to get together and hear what everybody has to say. But you also have to know when to filter and say, "Okay, I've just got to work on my own, you know, technique. You mentioned before that your process takes a long time and there's sort of a movement 
a fast painting. Right. Did you have to give yourself permission to paint slow? That's another one where I just did my own thing because I have heard from day one, well, when you get older, you'll get looser. The, the better you become, you're going to get looser. No, I'm not. <laughs> it is not my personality at all. And I really get frustrated when people say that. And I have seen some people that flounder because I don't think they've taken the time to technically learn some skills. And I think you really have to be rooted technically before you can start being loose. I say this not being a loose painter, so someone else can totally discredit what I'm saying. But for me, when I see someone that doesn't technically know drawing very well or some techniques yet, and they're trying so hard to paint in an hour, you need to go back and spend 30 hours first and then get to yourself where you can be doing that in an hour. Would I love to paint in one hour and have a masterpiece? Absolutely. And I get frustrated when there's competitions and stuff and you know that some of these painters can whip out five in a week and I'm like a month into it saying, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? So absolutely, I would like to be faster. But at the same time, that is my time. And that is also therapy for me. So I don't want to rush the process. It is, you know, what life is about the journey. <laughs> I say that, but you do need to have an end point. <laughs> you do need to finish a painting at some point. Some of what you're talking about is when we think about learning to paint, we think about the materials and we'll get into materials. Materials are important, but there's also all of these other things. And one of them is learning how much of the world to let in and how much of the world, honestly, to right. leave out. And how have you created a space for yourself to do the work in a place that allows you to be in the work and not in someone else's work? Well, it helps when you have a toddler and a baby at home and you physically can't, can't get away from you have a lot of time, but I move a lot. I live in Japan right now. I do have a lot of time on my own because I'm not where I can meet up with a group of artists, although I have a little community here. But every time I move, I have to reestablish myself. And so you do learn to kind of become your own entity that way. So that could be helpful, maybe. And I do think, you know, you see some people that spend a lot of time painting with one mentor which is great as long as you are growing yourself as an artist and not just stunting yourself by only painting that one hour a week because you go to this class and that's the only time, you know, that's fine. You have to decide what your goals are in life. Maybe it's very social for you and you want to just go and hang out for an hour a week and paint. But if you're trying to be serious about it and you're not getting results, it's probably because you're just not spending the time working on it. And anybody you read, anyone you talk to, you have to put the work in. It's just like anything in life. You know, if it's what you love and you're passionate about, you will devote and invest the time. We're going to adjust into thinking and planning a little bit. What decisions do you make before you begin painting and what decisions do you make while you're painting? So I am a super planned person in life and I'm a list maker. So my paintings are worked out, I would say, 98% before I even start painting. So I am not a spontaneous person in life. <laughs> I am not very spontaneous with my paintings. I pretty much have everything worked out in my head, on the computer, in my image before I start. Where I might alter is colors a little bit, but I will have figured that out ahead of time. That might be a, an example where I might decide this really needs a complementary color scheme and I need to get 
uh, purple in there because I have so much gold and, you know, where can I get that into the painting kind of thing. And those are some of the, where I can be a little bit more impromptu when I'm painting, but it's pretty planned out uh, before I even start. What do you figure out in the photography part of your planning? And then what do you figure out in the computer? Is photography mostly composition and then computer is value and color? Yes, exactly. So for the photography outside, I'm always just trying to figure out my composition. You know, I'm trying to put design principles in there, whether it be using odd numbers so that it's always more interesting to have odd numbers in your paintings. So I'm always thinking about those things. And a lot of times I just kind of am click, 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 and, you know, all different angles and all different. And then I come back in and then I'm in the computer figuring out which ones has the strongest design principles, whether I want a leading line leading you through a painting, whether I want more of a golden ratio going on. Those are innate. Most people are more attracted to that because it happens in nature. And so normally you're kind of attracted to one image over another. But if I'm having trouble deciding which one's the final image, that's when I'm like, okay, let's actually do the overlay. I'll take the golden ratio. I have a transparent overlay kind, you know, that I can lay on top and adjust, scoot things down a little bit. I told you I'm very planned. (laughs) And sometimes I'll go back to the drawing board and start a new photograph because I'll say, ah, I didn't quite get the right proportion or Maybe this blue bottle looks better over here because I've got an imbalance of color or, you know, oh, this is so close to this color scheme if I just shift this around. So I will go back sometimes. And that's why I do typically leave my setup out a big chunk of the day because the light is changing and I might photograph it at different times with different shadows. And then, I, like I said, I come in and kind of look through everything and say, oh, I've got to tweak this, tweak that and go back and start. So then when I get into the computer, exactly what you said, I'm going in for value. I'm going in for saturation. I'm brightening things up. I saturate a lot. My goal really is just to take kind of ordinary things that you have in your life or you're familiar with and just elevating them, making them more extraordinary. Because we have these workhorse things, you know, whether it's a ball dryer that cans for us or, you know, light bulbs. These things work for us all the time. And I'm just trying to make them as beautiful as possible because we are using them on a daily basis and we don't even see their beauty. So that's kind of what I want to do. And even like right now I'm getting ready. I'm departing a little bit from still life and I'm going to paint scenes from Japan. But it's kind of my take on it, but also things you walk by that are beautiful or moments that are beautiful that you maybe didn't take enough time to sit with. Composition and design are clearly really important to you. What's the biggest challenge you see with your students in composition and design? I think not being aware sometimes of just some of those elements. Some people have gone to art school. I went to art school, you know, I did art courses. I didn't go to art school specifically, but you take all those courses. They don't teach you a lot about technical drawing. They don't teach you a lot of design principles. Going through school in interior design is where I learned most of that. I mean, I took architectural drawing. It's rooted in perspective and all those things. And then I took color theory. I took, like I said, you, you're talking design principles all the time. So I really think it's so beneficial to have some technical skills like that, take some classes in color theory, take some classes in technical drawing, because they have really served me well throughout the years. And I can kind of tell in watercolor, people will sometimes project an image 
instead of drawing. And I'm not against these things if they speed up the process, but you can tell when someone doesn't know what they're doing and they're trying to project and then they can't fix little things. That's kind of an issue that you can't tweak and fix because you don't know technically what you're doing. So I can't say enough for those classes that I took and learning those technical skills. They've really served me well. I mean, composition is so complicated. Where does someone even start? Well, I think go and look at a book of your favorite paintings or go to a museum and stroll through and find the paintings and the images that speak to you the most. And that's going to start directing you to what you're interested in. And you can literally say, okay, I love how this was done in Monet's painting, you know, whether it's a color scheme or the way something's set up. Take that same idea and implement it in your own work. I'm not saying you copy, but you say, okay, this artist set things up this way. Even if it's figurative work, not even still life, I love how this person was posed. So look at that and say, okay, how can I translate that into what I'm doing? And when I was doing competition, well, I still do competitions, but when I first started, I really looked in the catalogs of the ones that were chosen for winning paintings and try to see what was kind of consistent. And sometimes it would be limited colors. Some shows look very gray, (laughs) you know, overall. And art is subjective, so every juror is choosing from what they go off of. But like I said, when I was doing my light bulb series... I thought, okay, I don't want to go crazy with color. Let's stick with a complementary color scheme. And it just brought it to a sophisticated level that may not have been there in the first place. So I would say if you can go and look at some of your favorite paintings or even if um, go on Pinterest, you know, and search whatever painting style you like and see which ones are jumping out at you. And maybe you try those same color schemes. And Anna Abgott had a book where she had famous paintings, exactly their color schemes, and then tried to mimic some of those colors in her work. You know, if it's a masterpiece and you you know, people go to see it in museums and love it, why not try to figure out what about it you could put in your own work? You mentioned color. How do you approach color in your work? I am not a limited palette person. I'll start with that. <laughs> so I have actually a lot of color in a lot of my pieces. But what I would say is I always try to have a color in three places on your painting because you want your eye to bounce around. So if you're introducing turquoise into your painting, you need to have it in more than one place so that your eye is carried through the painting. Like if you want to do a split complementary scheme, try to find a color that goes with it. People will use like the paint chips at the hardware stores. You can kind of even go pick those up and lay out your palette and figure that out. I don't mix on a palette anymore. I mix directly on my paper and I do that for a few reasons. I think it kind of started when I was moving and I didn't want to take all these palettes with me and I was getting really overwhelmed by my palettes because I never wanted to wipe down the colors. (laughs) So I kept accumulating palettes. This might be a watercolor problem, I think. So I kept accumulating palettes because these gorgeous colors would be mixed and I didn't want to wipe it out because I might need that color again. Maybe I'm a color hoarder. So um, I decided to streamline that process for me and get rid of that so I started mixing straight on my paper and I get clean colors that way clean washes I'm really happy with it and I really adapted to that so what I do in the beginning is I kind of shop for colors that I want to have in a painting so I may look at my reference photo and I go and shop for colors out of my stock I have them in two places now I have them in little bead containers so they are small little jars with lids 
and I have all my colors labeled on the bottom and they're kind of sorted in trays by color family. And then I just recently started using, they almost look like pillbox containers. They're in a circle and they have a hole in the middle. I found them in a Japanese hardware store. They were in the hardware section. I think they're for like screws and different hardware pieces. And I'm just going to jump in and say really fast, go to your hardware store because sometimes spend three times as much money at the art store and you find the same thing at the hardware store. So I'm a big proponent of going to your local hardware store and seeing what you can find there cheaper. So anyway, these little containers were like $1.50 a piece. And they hold, I think, eight or nine paint colors in them. And they have individual little lids. So now I, I have my paints by family. So blues, purples, in these little containers. And I like it because when I used to just shop for colors, I would go get a blue or maybe two blues. Now I have the whole family right there. So I have all those little analogous family members <laughs> right next door. And so I'm finding myself trying some colors that I haven't done in the past or dipping in. And it's giving me a little more freedom because I have a few more colors. Like I said, I'm not a limited palette person at all. Another thing I do, I have my favorite paints that I use on a regular basis. So I have my kind of like they're always going to do well for me, like my quinacridone gold. Undersea green is another one. It's kind of like an olivey blue green. So I have my favorite paints that are show up all the time. And I always like to challenge myself by bringing in a new color that I've never used before. So I can see if I can find some color that's I'm going to love and going to be a workhorse for me in other paintings. So that that is how I kind of approach color. So I'm always using the old friends and then finding some new friends in each painting that I like. When you're shopping those colors, does anything change from the plan? And then how do you adjust the plan? It could. I might decide I want to throw a real vibrant color in a couple different places. I might do that. Do you then go back and change that color in Photoshop so that it reflects? No, that I can kind of do on the fly, but it's normally in small doses and it's just like a bright pink goes a long way. So if you're just popping that in a couple places, it can be for emphasis that I want some area to pop out and it's not popping out enough. So I might decide I need to pop in a color in an area and brighten it up. But for the most part, I'm sticking to the plan unless there's just like maybe I want a turquoise or a bright pink or something pretty like that to liven something up. When you say you mix on the paper, Mm -hmm. there's a couple ways that could happen. So could you physically describe what is happening? So even though I paint pretty much wet on dry, I work in limited sections of wet on wet. So in those sections, I will be mixing my colors. So let's start, say I'm starting with a quinacridone gold, and that's my middle color, and I'll wash that whole thing with the quinacridone gold. I may go around the edges with a burnt sienna or a quin deep gold and start laying that in so it's really pretty and mixing together. I might pop in a red down at the bottom that I want to brighten up. So as I'm going, I have kind of my base layer and then I'm kind of deepening or changing the colors where I need to and by dropping color in in those specific areas. And I'm letting the paint mingle and do its thing kind of in the middle. So it is wet and wet in a very small section. Just to reiterate, to make sure I understand, you would put in a wash of color in an area Mm -hmm. and then drop in color. Right. And I might need a green, but I may start with the bright yellow because I want it to be bright and happy. And then I'll throw in the greens with it. And maybe that way I'm using some blues instead of a green, you know, so I'm mixing my own green as I go. 
or if I'm wanting a neutral color, maybe I'm throwing a little purple in with a yellow to dull it down. So I'm just doing that palette mixing on the paper. So hopefully people have seen your work and are familiar about your work. And the thing I find so interesting about the working that way is that you do some pretty realistic things that have pretty realistic, like glass. That way of working often creates really soft edges. So honestly, how does that process turn into a realistic looking light bulb? It's pretty amazing if you really break down realistic painting or even glass and realism, I would venture to even say skin tones too. I mean, you mingle all those crazy colors on a face. I mean, the first time I was doing portraits and they were throwing deep purple, I was like, what? (laughs) So, I mean, it's pretty amazing what your eye mixes when you stand back. So with still life and glass, it's a series of abstract paintings that are puzzle pieced together to get a realistic look. So I'm really not at all looking at it as a light bulb when I'm painting it. I'm trying to forget that, you know, it's always better if you can not label something, forget it. That's why people draw upside down, paint upside down. So I'm really just focused on what is happening and what are those little colors and this, the, how they play next to each other, how those shapes are next to each other. I honestly think you could make some really crazy abstracts within that. And it's still from a distance when it's all puzzle pieced together, it works kind of harmoniously. And I think that's probably what impressionism was founded on, you know, that idea that you're mixing these colors right next door to each other. And then from a distance, you've got this whole picture. Same thing I feel with realism painting. And I do like to play because it's so fun to mix and see what effects you can get within the constraints of this little puzzle piece. Are you then going after a value? That's where I really am referring to my reference. So let's say it's a super dark area. You don't want to put a straight up black in there because it's dead, right? So I mix my own darks and then you also play. So I always use an indigo and sepia that is my base for my darks. And then I'm playing with that. So if it's a warmer dark, then I might throw some quin gold in as it's mixing. If it's a cooler, you know, you may throw some purples or some ultramarines or something in there, but it doesn't really matter. You're going off your reference photo. You're really looking at the shape you're working on. If it's a dark shape, you're getting it dark, but you're trying to do it in a lively matter. Does that make sense? You don't want a black hole in the middle of your painting. You want something that's got some, it's got to be beautiful. No matter what it is, it's got to be beautiful. And I never treat an area, ah, it's just a dark shadow over there. It's always got to have something fun happening. You can find more out about Carrie Waller at her website, carriewallerfineart.com, and on Facebook and Instagram. Find links to all of it in the program notes. Carrie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. I've had a great time. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode eight to get show notes. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter. You'll get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. Happy painting. Happy painting.